Good morning. It's good to see all of you here, and we are grateful that you have come out on this exceptionally warm Sunday morning to be with us. Really, the first real cold snap that we've had. Uh, but it's warm in here, and it's good to see all of you who have come today. Uh, today is the 11th of November, and I know that many of you already know that the 11th of November is a special day in our country. Uh, it's a day that we recognize and uh, salute all of those who are veterans who have served in the armed forces. And we, have a, we, we are very special today uh, because we have probably one of the newest uh, graduates of Marine Corps boot camp in our presence this morning. And Nick Taylor is right up here. Nick, would you stand up and let us thank you this morning? Thank you. You may be seated. We are excited that you're here. We pray God's blessings upon you. I know it's been a rough few weeks. Um, I asked him when he came, I said, be honest with me. Did you think there was a moment or two that you might not make it? He said, only for maybe a second or two. But uh, I know it's been tough, but we are, we are exceptionally proud of you here at Ivy Creek. And we are thankful for what God has already done in your life. And we are praying that God will continue to do wonderful things in your life. Uh, from this point forward as you serve this country and as you go forth from this place. So uh, today is also a day, though, we want to not just recognize him. If you are here today and you have served in any branch of the military, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Coast Guard, would you please stand if you are able and allow us to recognize you and thank you this morning as well. You know, I believe it is always the right thing to do to bestow honor and respect upon those who have fought and who have served and who have sacrificed in order to defend this nation and the privileges and, um, that we are able to uh, enjoy in this country. And so many of you uh, were in combat. You served during times of war. Some of you, like myself, served during times of peace. Regardless of when you serve, may we just simply say to you, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your service. And we pray that God will continue to bless you, and bless your families, and may God continue to bless this great nation in which we live. And all God's people said. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them out, turn with me once again to the book of Haggai. Haggai there in the Old Testament, about three books to the left of Matthew, if you find it. We've been working our way through this book now for a few weeks, and uh, today we are going to look at the fourth message um, that the Lord delivers through this prophet. And we're going to be looking uh, in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Now, as you're making your way there, I read an article earlier this week that I took note of. It started this way. It says, buried securely within the cavity of the human chest is an amazing muscle about the size of one's fist. It's charged by a tiny electrical impulse and approximately every eight-tenths of a second it beats about 100,000 times a day, pumping some 1,800 gallons of blood that is rich with food and oxygen to all parts of your body. Its name, of course, is the heart. 
And it, along with its precious cargo, is the life center of the human body. Now, the reason that we know that the heart is the life center of the human body is because if the heart stops beating in a very short period of time, the person will die. Therefore, whenever there is an issue with the heart, All medical personnel are on high alert because the health of one's heart is is truly a matter of life and death. Now, it's not without significance, therefore, that, that the term heart eventually came to refer to more than just the physical muscle in a person's body. In fact, in the Bible, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, when you're reading through those, the terms that were used to refer to the heart rarely refer to the physical organ in a person's body. Rather, the terms for heart are often used, more often used figuratively to refer to the inner being of a person, um, to the spiritual center of an individual. And the reason that is the case is because just as the physical heart is the life center of the physical body, so the spiritual heart is the life center of the spiritual body. And the reason why all of that is germane and important to what we're talking about this morning is because this next major message that is delivered to the Jews by God through his prophet Haggai is a message that deals with a heart, not the physical heart, but the spiritual heart. And this message truly is a matter of life and death. I've entitled my sermon this morning that just simply this, that the heart of the matter It's a matter of the heart. So that gives us an idea of what we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's read our text together, beginning there in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, And with the edge he touches bread or stew or wine or oil or any food. Will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, no. And Haggai said, well, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. And now, carefully consider from this day forward. From before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. And one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press. There were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now, from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? Are yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? have not yielded fruit. But from this day, 
I will bless you. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about ourselves, ultimately what it reveals to us about you, and then how it offers us hope. Pray that that hope would be clearly communicated today through this text. Ask that you to bless our time together this morning. Be honored by it. Be glorified through it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The background of this passage is pretty important. I just read for you. Verse 10 makes it clear that the, that the message of God came through Haggai the prophet on the 24th day of the seventh month of the second year of Darius. Now, a couple of weeks back, we noted that the second year of Darius was equated to 520 B.C., Roughly 18 years after the Jews who had been released from their captivity in, in Babylon had been able to go back to their home in Judah, specifically to the city of Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is that scholars look at the 24th day of the seventh month and they equate it to our modern calendar day of December the 18th. So we might even say it this way, December the 18th of 520 B.C. is the date that this message came. And why that date is important is because as we begin to understand, this was the dedication day. This was the celebration really of the, the, the groundbreaking, you might say, for the, the, the temple that was being rebuilt there. And you'll recall a few months earlier, God had awakened the Jews to go about rebuilding the temple. And it had taken a few months for them to dig out all of the, the rubble and all of the weeds and get rid of all of the stuff that was there and finally get the, the temple foundation completely laid. And so this, if you could imagine, would be like a groundbreaking ceremony for them. On this 24th day of the seventh month of the second year of Darius, on December the 18th, 520 B.C. And it's on this occasion, on this very momentous occasion, that the Lord chooses to communicate with his, his people once again. And it's, it should be pointed out that the very nature of his message is a nature of reflection. You get that when you actually look at verse 15 and then verse 18. Once in verse 15, he says, carefully consider what I'm going to say. Verse 18 twice, he uses the same word again. Consider it, think about it, reflect on it, contemplate it, ponder on what it is that I'm communicating to you. The very nature of this message is a nature of reflection and consideration. So what is it that they're to consider? Well, according to the text, on, on this day of dedication and celebration, they needed to ponder the significance of their customs and their ceremonial laws. That was important. Not only that, but they needed to reflect on all that had happened to them in the past as a direct result of their disobedience to what God had told them to do. That was also important. But it didn't stop with just reflection in the past. It was also something to look forward. They needed to ponder the blessing that God promised them would come into their lives. And by nature of the fact that he tells them to consider it, to reflect on it, to ponder it, connects it necessarily to a matter of the heart. To something very significant and important and necessary. A message that ultimately leads to life and death. So this morning I want us to consider right alongside those Jews. The message that God delivers to his people through the prophet Haggai. And the first point that I think we need to consider this morning. That is clear from our text is this. External formalities can never purify the internal reality of a corrupt heart. External formalities can never 
purify the internal reality of a corrupt heart. This is communicated to us really through the first question that the prophet Haggai poses there in verse 12. Let me read it for you again. He asked this question, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And the obvious answer to that question that the priests gave to him was no. Now, this may seem a little weird to us and not quite as sensible as it was to them. After all, we do not have all of the ceremonial laws that the Jews had with regard to what they considered consecrated and holy and then also with regard to what was considered unclean. We should note, however, that there were things that were set apart to the Lord for His service. There were even people, priests, who were set apart for the Lord's service. And those things were considered to be holy. They were consecrated. And the simple question that's being asked is this. If something that's consecrated, in this particular instance, if meat that is consecrated should touch something else that is not consecrated, it has not been deemed holy, would the holiness of that meat transfer to those other things? In other words, we could ask the question this way. Is holiness catching? Maybe we would know that the obvious answer to that is no. This past, a couple of weeks ago, we had a gallon of milk in our refrigerator. Before it was done, it went sour. That's pretty rare to have happen with four kids in the house, that we have a gallon of milk go bad before it's finished. But it happened. Because I know they kept in, this doesn't smell right. Of course, you know, I have to go over and check it out. And of course, it, and it was, it was sour. But what if we've got another refrigerator out in the garage, had another gallon of milk in it. I said, what if, just, y'all just hold on. I'm going to go out to the garage and I'm going to get another fresh gallon of milk and I'm going to bring it in and I'm going to pour some of the fresh milk into the gallon of the sour milk. Now, would that have made the sour milk fresh again? No. And that's exactly, that's exactly the point that Haggai is communicating in this passage. What, what he's saying is, is that is that this consecrated meat has no ability to just touch other things and those other things suddenly become holy because it came in contact with it. Holiness, purity, does not come from the outside in. It's not catching. You can't just get it like that. And when we contemplate that understanding, that illustration, what we realize is the greater significance that it tells us about our hearts. You see, here's the thing. External formalities, they have no ability whatsoever to purify the inward reality of a corrupt heart. Consider this. These Jews, ever since they had been released from their captivity in Babylon, had come back to Jerusalem. And the temple had lain in ruins, but they were still sacrificing. They were still doing all the things that good Jews were supposed to do. But during that entire time, they remained disobedient to God because they had failed to rebuild the temple itself. And all those outward things that they had done had failed to accomplish anything internally in their lives. And brothers and sisters, the same thing happens to every one of us. You know, we can come here to this church and we can sing all the songs and we can listen to the sermon and listen to our Sunday school teacher and we can... We can pray, we can read our scriptures, we can do all of those things. 
But holiness is not communicated to our inner life through external things. Church attendance, baptism, putting money in the offering plate at the end of the service, living a moral life, none of those things have the ability to make pure a heart that is corrupt and is far from God. That's the first lesson that this text teaches us. Then there's a second one. The second point that Haggai brings out is this. The impurity of a corrupt heart will ultimately contaminate everything around it. The impurity of a corrupt heart will ultimately contaminate everything around it. This is the question that he poses in verse 13. If one who is unclean because of a dead body, and you realize that in the Jews, if they ever touched anything's dead, that immediately made them ceremonially unclean. So he says, if somebody who is unclean touches, touches any of these things, the stuff that he's talking about in verse 12, will it too be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. So what we understand is that while holiness is not catching, defilement is. Using that same illustration of the milk. If the sour milk is sitting there on the counter and I've gone and gotten the fresh milk out of the other refrigerator and it's there, would you be willing to drink it if I had taken some of the sour milk and poured it into the gallon of the fresh milk and mixed it up real good and poured some of it? How many of you would want a glass of that? None of you would. Why? Because that which is contaminated spreads and contaminates that which is around it. By the way, if you've got a banana sitting out on your countertop and it's going bad. Don't go get a fresh banana or brand new bananas, them green ones, and bring in and sit down. It'll turn those green ones bad quick. Ask me how I know. <laughs> it's the law of contamination. That which is contaminated, contaminate, uh, one bad apple in a barrel will eventually cause the entire barrel to go bad. Put it to you another way. Let's say that you're in a room, and there's a lot of, all of you are healthy. And then that one guy comes in, he's got the flu. And he starts loving on you and hugging on you and kissing you all around. What's going to happen to all the healthy people in the room? They're all going to get sick. Why? Because the impurity of a corrupt heart, that's the spiritual lesson. The impurity of a corrupt heart will ultimately contaminate everything else around it. You see, as I said, while holiness is not catching, defilement is catching. And God's point in communicating these truths to these Jews was to point out to them that while they had sat around doing nothing for all of those years, while they had been more focused on building their own houses and paneling their own walls and, and doing their own things out of selfishness and self-centeredness, focusing on their own personal wants rather than rebuilding the temple that God had told them to do, Though they thought their sacrifices and though they thought all of the things that they were doing externally were making them right with God, he's saying none of that happened. As a matter of fact, it corrupted everything around you. And through these two illustrations, God tells them, consider some important truths. Number one, good things, doing good things are never a remedy for a bad heart. External actions are never the remedy for a heart that is not right with God. Secondly, if your heart is not right with God, everything else you do will be contaminated by it. Mark it down, take it to the bank. One preacher I read put it this way. 
He said in the context of Haggai, God is communicating that he wanted more than a temple to be built. He wanted the hearts of the people to be fully devoted to him. He didn't want a big fancy house filled with empty hearts. Brothers and sisters, you and I should consider these things. We should chew on them. We should ponder them and contemplate them and roll them around in our heads and think about it. And what we should realize is that our relationship with God is not built on externals. It is not built on checking boxes so that we can say we did this or we did that. It's not, it's not anything along those lines. God is no more interested in a big fancy house filled with empty hearts today than he was in 520 B.C. Rather, our relationship with God is one of the heart. And if our hearts are not right before him, then everything else we do will be contaminated. That had been the situation in Jerusalem. So God set about to get the attention of his people. And in fact, that's what we learn in the next set of verses. So note the third point on your outline that this text teaches us. The third point simply is this. God often sends judgment and discipline in order to turn corrupt hearts toward him. God often sends judgment and discipline in order to turn corrupt hearts toward him. God reminds the Jews that in the days prior to their obedience, back when they were living for themselves and not for him, whenever they came to 20 ephahs or 20 measures of wheat or whatever it was they were looking for, they, were, they didn't find 20, they only found 10. Whenever they went to get 50 measures or 50 uh, their various measures of, of, of wine from the wine press. They weren't but 20. And what he's telling them is, is that you thought that all of the effort that you'd put into things should have produced a certain amount, but what you found out, it wasn't even producing half, and in some cases, even less than that. In fact, all of the, they were barely, the, their crops were barely yielding enough for them to even survive off of. And what Haggai reminds them of is exactly what he had said back in chapter 1. That was the wake-up call message that he had sent to them to begin with. If you remember back in verse 6 of chapter 1, God said through the prophet there, You have sown much and bring in little. You eat and do not have enough. You drink and you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. He who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. God went on in chapter 1 to reveal that he was the one who had who had blown away all of their resources, the vacuum that had sucked away all of their financial reserves was actually God blowing it away from them. He even tells them that he sent a drought on the land and caused their crops to falter. Back here in chapter 2, verse 17, he said, It was me. I'm the one who struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands. Now, when we discussed all of this a couple of weeks back, the issue before us was simply, can God still be good if he brings judgment and discipline upon us? And the answer to that question is yes. Why? How? Well, God's judgment and discipline are actually a demonstration of his mercy and his grace. Notice the reasoning. Notice the reasoning that he gives for the blight and the mildew and the hail there in verse 17. He says, I sent all those things on you, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. 
in that phrase, we actually learn the reason why God sent all of that upon them to begin with. He sent the, he sent the discipline. He sent the judgment upon them so that he could turn their hearts away from the things that they were pursuing that were never going to fill them up, that were never going to be able to satisfy them and sustain them. He sent those things to turn them toward him. God's judgment and his discipline were sent in order to turn corrupt hearts toward him. Listen, if as I have proposed that the heart is the, that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart, if, if your spiritual heart is the life center of your spiritual being, and, and, and if your heart, is, if, if the health of it is truly a matter of life and death, and if true life is only found in a deep and abiding relationship with God, then the most loving and the most gracious and the most merciful thing that a loving God could do is to send his judgment and his discipline upon you to help you turn loose of all of those things that will only bring you down and only keep you separated from him so that your heart could be turned toward him in faith and in repentance. You know, when a cardiologist tells his or her patient that they need to lose weight and exercise and eat the right foods and reduce their stress and keep watch over their blood pressure and their cholesterol and take all the medicines that they prescribe. When a cardiologist tells his or her patient to do that, they do that because they recognize that the physical heart, that the health of the physical heart is absolutely vital to the health of the person and the overall life and death of that person. Many of the things that a cardiologist will prescribe are not necessarily fun and easy things to have to do. But rarely does anyone consider cardiologists to be mean or unkind because of their recommendations. Brothers and sisters, understand this. Our Heavenly Father is infinitely more loving and kinder than any cardiologist ever could be. Why? Because he is perfect and he is just and he is holy and he desires nothing more than to be able to bless us. But those blessings can only flow into our hearts when we have turned our hearts toward him. And therefore, when we truly consider how he has worked in our lives and how he has maneuvered our circumstances and how he has worked through our situations financially, relationally, emotionally, physically, if we truly ponder on those things, do we not see how he has used so many of those circumstances in our life to turn our hearts toward him? To remind us of who he is and remind us of his love for us? For some, we can look back on our lives and we can say, yes, God was good in bringing me to repentance and restoration through the, the issues that I faced in my life. Others, however, like those Jews, I believe still remain hard, still refuse to acknowledge that God is working to bring about their repentance and their restoration. The question that's before us this morning is, which category do you fall into? You see, God's word reminds us that he often sends judgment and discipline into our lives in order to turn our corrupt hearts toward him. But I want you to notice that the prophet's message moves from just simply looking backward to actually looking ahead to what was coming. And that's the fourth thing that we notice on our text this morning. The fourth point simply is this. Hearts that turn toward God will receive the promise of God's blessing. 
Hearts that turn toward God will receive the promise of God's blessing. Read verses 18. I love these verses. Consider now. From this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day, I will bless you. Now, what the prophet tells us is from the day that this temple is dedicated, from this moment, this was an important day. And it's the hinge upon which all of the, the discipline and all of the judgment that had been given to them, it's the hinge that now moves toward the blessing that he's going to give them from that much forward. It all hinges on this day. You see, prior to this day, the people had experienced all of the bad stuff. And Matt, he asked, he says, is, is the seed in the barn? No. Are the trees producing fruit? No. He says, it's not no, but it's not yet. Because from this day forward, I will bless you. You see, now these Jews have turned their hearts toward God. Now they, are, now they are acting in obedience. Now they've turned away from selfishness and self-centeredness. And their hardened hearts that, that were hardened because of their own selfish pursuits are now tender toward God. And God says, my blessings are going to come on you. Dale Ralph Davis is one of my favorite preachers. Most people have no idea who he is, and that's, that's fine. He serves in, in, in a lot of anonymity, but he has blessed me a lot through the years. He makes this observation. He points out that the promise was made to the people when they were on the brink of disaster. They were starving because of the drought and because of the blight and because of the mildew and the hail that God had sent upon them. And, and Davis goes on to make this point. He says, when God turns to you in grace, it will often be when you've come to the brink of disaster. When your hope is gone, that is when God tends to show up. You ever wonder why? I believe it's because he is in his love, letting us know that all of those other things that we've clutched so tightly to our chest and thought those were the things that were going to save us, and those were the things that were going to bring us hope, and those were the things that were going to bring us comfort, and those were the things that were going to bring us joy. He strips those things away from us so that the only thing we have left to cling to is Him. And listen, that is a hurting thing to have that stripped away. And sometimes when we come to the end of who we are, we recognize that we're on the brink of having no hope left, and that's exactly when God says, you don't have any hope left except in me. That is the loving hand of God that works in our lives, in our difficult scenarios and circumstances. Some of you may be there today. You feel as though you're going down for the last time. You may feel as though your hope is gone. You are ready to give up and you're ready to throw in a towel. Listen, before you do that, I want you to understand that God is calling to you. God is calling to you and asking for you to turn to him in repentance and in faith. Ultimately, what you set your heart upon will be the determining factor in your experience of the Lord's blessing. 
And God Almighty is calling to you to tell you, set your heart upon me. Turn to me. But all that begs the question. If, if God says here, from this day forward, I will bless you, then what is the nature of that blessing? Because you've already said that, that nothing that we do externally can ever change the corrupt heart. And you've also said that everything that's corrupt on the inside of us is going to spread to what's outside. So where's the blessing? What is the nature of this blessing? I'm really glad you asked me that question. You see, here's where we have to interpret what Haggai wrote by what we learn in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, what we learn is that Jesus, when he came, he demonstrated again and again and again and again that he had the power to cleanse corrupt hearts. He demonstrated it specifically in the Gospel of Mark. Y'all ever read the Gospel of Mark and studied it? In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, you come across this individual who had leprosy. Leprosy in that day was something that completely kept someone separated from society. Someone who had leprosy couldn't touch another individual because him touching another individual would contaminate them. And so they set them aside and put them out. Jesus, though, goes to the leper, lays his hand on the leper, and what happens? The leper becomes clean. Now, wait a minute. Haggai has already said that something from the outside coming in can't cleanse a person. But it's only corruption that's going out. Jesus reverses that. He Understand this. When Jesus comes in contact with the corrupt heart, He doesn't become corrupt as a result of it. In fact, just the opposite transaction takes place. Jesus has the ability to transfer His holiness and to cleanse the corrupt heart. It happens again and again and again throughout his ministry. A woman who is hemorrhaging blood and thereby unclean, according to Jewish society, sneaks up behind Jesus in order just to touch the hem of his garment. And what happens? His power flows out from him and suddenly she's healed. He's not made unclean because of her touch. On the other hand, she is made clean because of her touch of Jesus. A little girl is dead, laying on her bed. Jesus goes into her room. And by being in the same room and putting his hands on her, ceremonially, Jesus would have been considered unclean. But nothing further from the truth could have happened. In fact, he lays his hand on the little girl and suddenly the breath of life enters back into her and she stands up. Do you understand that Jesus reverses the curse? And he has come just as the Christmas song that we will eventually begin singing. Jesus comes to, to spread his good news far as the curse is found. That's why he came. That is the message of the gospel. And that's the good news of the blessing that Haggai ultimately points us to. You see, when Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross, he died on the cross as a criminal who was completely separated from society. He was the scourge of the earth. And yet he was one who had lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. And yet he died on a cross so that sinners like you and me might gain our freedom, that we might actually be cleansed of our unrighteousness and set right with God. He died vicariously. He died in our place. He not only died, but he rose again on the third day. And because he rose again on the third day, we have proof that God was satisfied with his sacrifice and that he was accepted by him. And that is the greatest news and the greatest blessing that could ever be known. Because here's the thing. 
He has come to spread His love and to spread His joy among those of us who could never earn it and could never get it on our own. Jesus has given Himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And what that means is that we no longer need the temple to go into sacrifice. Rather, all we must do is turn loose of all of these things that we have latched onto in our lives and turn toward him who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And the Bible tells us that when we will turn toward him, when we will turn loose of all of these other things, when we will confess our sins before him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. God's ultimate blessing of salvation comes through the vicarious death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who purifies the corrupt hearts of those who turn to him in faith and in repentance. The question that I have to ask you this morning is how is your heart? Do you realize that your spiritual life And death rests upon the health of your heart. And God is calling to you this morning. He is calling to you to say, turn loose of all of those other things. Turn to me. Confess me as your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sins. This is what we've learned is that a matter, that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And Jesus Christ has come to bring life and healing and cleansing to our broken, corrupt, and impure hearts. And He alone can do that. The question is, will you turn your heart to Him today? Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Thank